Well, you know, this series has been about choices. And in this series, I've been asking you to make a choice. One of the choices that you have in life, uh, as we see from the series, is you could choose to give away the ordinary life, forego the popularity of the world, overcome selfishness and greed, and leave the trappings of religion behind. Or you could choose to live an extraordinary life filled with what we might call soul-bending purpose, overflowing with generosity while enjoying the power of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to make the second choice. I'm inviting you to that kind of life. Now, here's why I'm inviting you to that kind of life. It's not so much that it will make your life better, although it will. I mean, if you live that kind of life, if you do those kinds of things, you're going to find that your soul is going to be filled to overflowing. I mean, stuff is just going to be coming out of you that's just so, so powerful and such a blessing to others that, that people are going to, they're just going to say, what happened to you, man? That's what we want to happen for you. But more than that, even more than that, is we need it to happen in our world. Dude, I, I'm just telling you, I know you know this, but you turn on the radio, you look at the magazines, you look at the newspaper articles, you, you flip on a, a something on the internet, and I mean, this world is just, we're just so bombarded with all the stuff that is wrong. And the world has forgotten that there's a Jesus who lives in the middle of it, they'll just accept Him. But the world is having a hard time with it. When you look at the statistics of church growth and what's happening with churches today, it, it's, uh, it's scary. I was just at a conference this week, as many of you know, a bunch of people have my positions, Ken Love's position, we're all there together, and we're looking at some of this, this data and this, these things that are happening in the culture. And man, I'm just telling you, it, is, uh, it, it just convinces me that if we don't do our job, there's not going to be much left to pass on to my grandkids. Man, I want to leave them with so much. And so I'm just calling you to take a step, of adventurous step in your life and, and move forward. And you see, we are where we're at today. And this is going to seem strange. And I, and I realize that as soon as I say it, you're going to, you're going to shake your head and you're going to say, what did he say? You know, you know how we're here today? It's because of a pig. I, I'm not kidding you. And when I say pig, I mean oink, 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 pig. We're here today in part because of a pig. Now, I know a little bit about pigs. As most of you know, I, I live in Texas. I spent, I spent my early years in Texas, now my later years in Texas, hopefully not my last years in Texas. Grew up on a farm in Oklahoma. We... We raise cows. I had I, I, when I was in high school, I'd raise cows and sell them so someone could eat them. Uh, seemed kind of cruel, but it was good money for me. My three, I had three favorite cows at one time, and I nicknamed them Mo, Larry, and Curly. I kid you not. Whenever I'd walk at five thirty in the morning down to their pen to feed them, they'd all be they'd all be huddled into a corner of the pen. They'd just be watching for me, and I'd be walking down there, and and they would they'd get all happy. We had pigs. Know a little bit about pigs. But in a, around 167 B.C., there was an incident that took place in Israel that really ultimately changed 
the world and why we are here today, at least uh, from a Christianity standpoint. Let, let me give you quickly the outline of the story. Alexander the Great had been conquering the world. You know this from history. He'd conquered basically the entire known world in, in this region. And one of those places was the nation of Israel. So Israel was being conquered by the Greeks. When Alexander the Great died, he passed off the territory, his territories to, to four people. And one of those persons had the territory of Israel. Well, they let the Israelites live their religion, let them practice their Judaism without hindrance. But when that person died, it was passed on to his son. Now, when, when, when something is passed on to your son, there's usually a reason to be afraid. Because generally the fathers do what's right, and it's, the, it's those sons that we have troubles with. Well, the son's name was Antiochus Epiphanes. That's a, that's a great name. The third. Got to have the third. And he believed that everybody under his control should live exactly like he did. He believed that everybody should be Hellenized or, or made to conform to Greek culture, Greek ways of life, Greek food, Greek religion, all of those things. Well, as you can see, the Greek way of life and the Hebrew way of life stood in opposition. And while Antiochus' Epiphanes' dad let, them, let the Jewish people live the way they wanted to live, Antiochus said, no, we're not going to do that. And so he tried to make them conform to the way of life of, of, of the Greeks. They were resistant. The Jewish people have always been very zealous to maintain their, their religious life, their way of life, and, and so they, re, they, they bucked against that command. Well, Antiochus Epiphany basically had enough. So he comes into Jerusalem. He sets up, catch this, a Greek altar at the temple. And on that Greek altar, he sacrifices a pig. Now, for those of you who know anything about the Old Testament, you know that, that, that pigs, while they tell us that they are pretty smart animals, were not appreciated by Jewish people. They didn't eat ham. They didn't like it. So the, the very fact that this pig was sacrificed on a Greek altar in Jerusalem near the temple was enough to... That was, that was like throwing down the gauntlet and saying, hey, dude, we're going to fight it out because that was a, a very severe event. Well, as a result of that, there was this revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. Now, here's where I'm going. Out of the Maccabean Revolt, which, by the way, the, 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 the Jewish people won, which was amazing. It's like the Six-Day Wars. The Jewish people have a way of winning wars when they never should. That's because God is with them, right? And so they won, so they, so they won this war, and out of this, a group called the Hasidim, who had been keepers of the law, ultimately became this group of people called the Pharisees. Now... The Pharisees had this, um, had this particular charge. Their charge was they were to protect the law. Now, when we today read, the, when we hear the word Pharisee today, it's a, it's a negative. But in its original context, to be a Pharisee was to be a protector of something that was spiritual, that was divine, that was a gift from God, and, and that was the Word of God, the Torah. The Torah, they believed, was, was the very words of Moses. So they were protecting the, the founder in many ways of their nation. And so that was their job, and they took it very seriously. They believed that as long as the Word and the temple remained firm, that God's presence would be with them. And so they, they had this duty that they exercised with great fidelity. In fact, they believed that as they, as they protected the law, they were protecting their nation. 
So, so do you, so you do get the, the, the social and the cultural importance of the Pharisees. The problem is, the Pharisees began to gain some power. Not only were they no longer just protecting the law, but their role evolved. They began being placed, the Pharisees did, into the, the Supreme Court, if you will, of, of the day. And, and they became more involved in political activities. And, and we all know that when religion and politics start to mix, things typically go wrong. And that's what happened. So while the Pharisees had this charge that was honorable and noble and important, they abused that charge and they began to go wrong. So where did they go wrong? They went wrong in a lot of places, but, but this morning, let me just tell you about one place where they went wrong. See, they believed that we had to, in order for God to bless his people, we had to keep the word. So the, we had to follow the scriptures and follow the customs of the scriptures. And so the Pharisees had a strategy for accomplishing this. Their strategy was that they would set up what might be called a hedge around the law so that we wouldn't break the law. It was kind of like, it's kind of like the law was in the middle and the hedge was on the outside so that we could not get through that hedge to the law and actually break the law. It was kind of like a, a boundary. Now I realize that concept is, is maybe unfamiliar to us. So let me, let me explain it in a way that we can all understand this morning. This is what a hedge is. So let's suppose that um, your wife or, or husband, equal opportunity, but I'm going to use the wife. Let's suppose your wife spends the morning in the kitchen and she makes this, this, this decadently moist, chocolatey German chocolate cake. And let's say she, she, she takes the coconut and the icing and, and mixes it all together. And on the outside, it has an inch thick of icing. And there's two inches thick of icing in between the two layers. And it's just, it's just like this. You're just, I mean, you walk in and you're looking at her making it. And you're just licking your chops. And you're thinking, oh man, this is going to be so good. This is going to be so good. And so she makes this cake. She takes it off the bacon. She's all finished with it. She puts it in that, you know, one of those little glass things that has the you know what it is? All I know is that thing's an impediment to my happiness. That's all I know. So, so she makes this cake, and, and then here's what she does. She sits it on the middle of the island in the kitchen. And when the lights are on, it's almost like there's this holy glow coming from the cake. You're looking at it. You're getting out of your chair. You're ready to go in there. And your wife says, whoa, 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 bud. Where do you think you're going? She knows where you're going. She says, you cannot have that cake because that cake is for life group tonight. And so you're thinking to yourself, life group? I don't even like those people. So she says, so she says, so what she does is she takes her hand and she, she starts to, to pet your hair like you're the family dog. Has that ever happened to you? And then, she, and then she says to you, now, now, honey, and she starts to talk to you like one of the kids. Has that ever happened to you? It's kind of like, like, honey, I'm a grown man, mostly. Don't do that. So here's what she says to you. She says, honey, for the next few hours, you cannot go in and have any cake. In fact, you cannot even step inside the kitchen. Here is the line for the kitchen. Now, that line is the hedge to keep you from sinning. 
Because I guarantee you, that kind of sin of eating the, the cake before life group will be like hell for you later. So we do not sin. So she makes this, so she makes this point. Here's the line. You cannot cross it. Now, why did she do that? Because she knew that, that you don't have enough willpower not to, just, not to just sneak inside when no one's looking. While the holy glow is on it, you lift it up and you just take at least a little. You would do it, wouldn't you? Absolutely you would. And she knew you would. And so she set up this hedge to prevent you from doing that. Now see, for German chocolate cake, that sounds like a good idea. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. Is they were setting up this, this hedge around the law so that you couldn't break the law. So look at Matthew chapter 15. Um, we're going to look at a few verses here. I'm not going to read all the verses for time's sake, but, but I want you to catch this scripture because this is a very important thing for us to understand today. It says in verse 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, just notice, we're talking about the Pharisees. Remember all that I have said. The Pharisees had this noble charge that they perverted, and now they were taking the traditions, setting hedges around them that weren't even biblical, that weren't even, that weren't even, uh, even logical, really, in their society. And so the Pharisees sent people, notice that, they sent them from Jerusalem. It's like this official delegation was coming down to inspect Jesus. And here, this is what they asked. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So, listen, when I, when I was a young Christian, this did not make sense to me. Because they sent an entire delegation, first class camel all the way, sent an entire delegation to go ask Jesus why his disciples didn't wash their hands. I mean, we all know to wash our hands, right? Public service announcement, when you go... You wash, right? We know that. But they went down to inspect that ritual. Now, here's the thing. It really wasn't a, a law in the Old Testament, but the custom had been that, that you, to keep you from being defiled, you'd always wash your hands. And so when we wash our hands, I know you probably can't see my hands in the back, but you wash your hands down to about right here. Well, the, 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 the hedge was you not only washed up to, your, up to your, I don't know what that thing is called out. What's that thing called right there? The wrist, well, there's a bone there. I don't know what that bone's called. But anyway, you wash up to at least that bone. But the hedge was that you should probably wash all the way up to your elbow. Just in case you didn't wash your hands well enough to be below the, the bone, right? So that was the hedge. They sent people all the way to ask Jesus that question. No, they were, they were really trying to trap them. So here's how Jesus replies. As in why do you, and so he says to them, you know, here, here's, here's what, they did exactly what my wife does to me all the time. She answers my question with another question. And that question is always more difficult to answer than the one I asked her. Always. So Jesus replied, and why do you break the, and why do you, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And they're going to, they're going to hear this and say, break the command of God. No, we're, we're, we're Pharisees. We wouldn't do that. And then he goes on and says, don't you know that God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death? Well, of course they knew that command. But then Jesus points out to them, but you say that if a man says to his father or mo mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father or mother with it. So here was the custom. 
It was really cheeky. We're supposed to, in, in their day, really in our day too, we're supposed to take care of our parents. That's what the law, you're supposed to honor your parents. You're supposed to take care of them. But if you were to, rather than use your wealth on taking care of your father and mother, if you would say, I'm devoting it to God, then you could take that devotion, whatever, you could devote a little portion to God, even though you're saying it was the whole portion, and you give the little bit to God and you use the rest in the way that you want. It was a, it was a little tax evasion strategy, a command, uh, a law evasion strategy that they were exercising. And Jesus says, you're nullifying the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And then he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart, heart is far from me. So you see what they were doing. They were, they were subverting the law with their own rules, and they were setting a hedge around the law so that they, could, that they could construct this society where everyone would be pure and undefiled. But Jesus called them into question for that. Jesus said in verse, uh, look, look a little further down into the text, he says in verse 17, because his, his disciples weren't getting it, and Jesus said, are you so dull? Um, which is always interesting when Jesus calls you names. Um, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then comes out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these are what make a man or woman unclean. And they miss that. You see, to the, to the Pharisee, keeping the law, whether it was a written law or an oral law, was everything. The condition of a person's heart didn't really matter as long as you kept the law, as long as you kept the law. Their, their worship ultimately became just this, this formal religious observance, and it became hypocritical. So when Jesus and the Pharisees met, inevitably there was going to be a clash, and that clash led to the death of Jesus, which led to the life of you and I. And as I said, it was because, in part, because of a pig. Now, folks, here's the summary. And I, when I say this, you're going to say, yes, I've heard this in church all my life. I know we've heard it in church. I've heard it in church. I've spoken about it many times. But it's kind of like the pastor who goes to a, you know, he goes to a brand new church and the first Sunday he preaches his great message and, and everybody loves it. Comes back the next week and he preaches the same exact message with even more energy and and everybody loves it, but they're shaking their heads. He comes back the third Sunday, and he preaches the same message. And the fourth Sunday, he does the same thing. Finally, the elders go to this pastor, and they say, Pastor, you've preached the same message for four weeks straight in a row. Why are you doing that? And he said, well, when you start living that one, then I'll preach another one. So here's the summary. I want you to catch this. It's simple. That's so important. When religion becomes more about rules than relationships, we have a problem, Houston. When religion becomes more about rules than relationships, we have a problem. And I want us to be very careful because with Christianity, if we're not careful, as some churches have done, we create our own system of Pharisaicalism, which is not in the dictionary, 
but it's a word. You see, we can easily become the legalist we despise. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great 19th century preacher, once preached the following. He said, Beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian in us. He said, if I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than the Christian I am. And then he says, for we are all born legalists. We're all born legalists. The problem with the Pharisees and the problem with many people in the church today is that we have become informed legalists. We have learned and, and, and we have created this great ability in ourselves to see the sin in others and to ignore the sin in our own heart. And that is the distinguishing characteristic of a Pharisee. You see, Pharisaical, Pharisaical behavior leads to this idea of religiosity, which is the state of being superficially religious. So how do I know if I'm being Pharisaical? How do I know if I'm practicing this idea of religiosity? Well, there are some, some questions we can, or some observations we can note. Let me give you a few of these. We might, become an, we might fit into the Pharisaical pattern when we talk like Christ, but don't live like Christ. When we love the honor of serving, the honor of serving more than serving itself. We might be Pharisaical when we think that showing up for worship simply makes us right with God. We might be Pharisaical when we spend more time talking against things than for things. Or when we never repent of anything. Or when we practice bibliolatry, which is equating the Bible with God. Or when we say things like, you shouldn't hang around with people like that, or you're not praying right or enough. When, when we have any of these things starting to creep into our language, we're becoming like a Pharisee. And people don't like Pharisees. And when we become like Pharisees as Christians, then people don't like us. And they often don't like the Christ that we serve. One day after a lecture, C.S. Lewis was answering some questions um, with his classmates. And someone asked the question, which of the world's religion gives its followers the greatest happiness? C.S. Lewis paused and he answered this way. He said, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. Religion is not what we're after. While Christianity is technically defined by sociologists and anthropologists as a religion, if you look up the world's greatest, you know, the world religions, Christianity is always going to fall in there. Yes, we know that categorically speaking, Christianity falls into the category of a religion, but we don't want to live it religiously. We don't want to live it like the Pharisees did. We want to do something different. The charge that Jesus leveled against the Pharisees, that they were perfect on the outside and flawed on the inside. That real relationship is not built with, by surface expressions and image management. That's not what Jesus was after. What Jesus was after was a real relationship. A real relationship that experiences transparency, vulnerability, and honesty. That is the only way we can ever keep, that we can only ever be kept in, in the full grace of God. It's when we're living our life out here. 
You see, we have to realize that, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. In this relationship, it is God who pursues us, and it is God who, who wants to, to be known by us so that we can know Him. We remember that nothing that man can do for himself makes us right with God. That God did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That, that our sin separates us from his presence. That God loves us and he took this punishment upon ourselves. God wants us involved in this real relationship. And he did not do all of those things so that he could have a religion. If that's all God wanted, the Pharisees would still be in control because they did it well. They were good at religion. They were not good at relationship. Part of the reason that, that God wants us to enter into a relationship with Him is so that we can learn what it means to be fully human. Now that seems like a strange phrase, but, but I think sometimes we, we kind of live this facade of humanity. Because we're we're putting up this 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 image, we want to please people. We want to let them. We want them to think certain ways of us. And and when we have troubles, uh, we want to we want to let people know that we got it. That everything's under control. And in the church, and again, I, I'm not I'm not I'm, please I'm not trying to be overly, I'm not trying to be overly. I'm not calling you names like Jesus did. I'll let Jesus call you names. I'm just I'm just. Here's what I hear sometimes, and it's good if you believe it, but we have so many platitudes that we say in the Christian faith. We just say words sometimes, but the words have lost meaning. You're having troubles and you say, well, I'll pray for you. Do you? Do you? I'm going to give you a little secret about me. I'm going to be real and transparent and vulnerable. If you tell me your problems... And if I say to you, I will pray for you, I will pray for you. If I don't say I will pray for you, I might not. Not because I don't want you, I forget. But sometimes we, ha we have to follow through on those, uh, on those statements. Sometimes when we, when we have troubles, we say, well, this is what's going on in my life, but I'm trusting God, I'm trusting God. Are you? What are you doing that expresses that you're trusting God, really? If we're trusting God and, we're, and we continue to just complain and, and, and have anxiety and have stress and have difficulties, that's not, the God, that's not the peace that God wants to give us. So are we really doing that? You see, when we, when we come to church and we say the right things and we feel like we're doing the right things and we dress the right way and, and all of those things, then, then we're really not much removed from the Pharisees. But Jesus wants something real with us. Something real. When we go into our time of prayer, Jesus wants us to confess. I mean, everything. Everything. Not because He doesn't know it, but because He needs you to say it so that you can overcome it. So what does a real relationship with Jesus look like? real relationship with Jesus looks like a, a few things. And these, these kind of work in order, so stay with me for just a second. It means time together. Now, again, we've heard this in church all of our life. But it means spending time 
with God. A few weeks ago, I, I stumbled across something. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know. I don't even remember where I got it. But, but it was asking the question, which is true religion? A man sitting in a boat fishing, thinking about God, or a man sitting in church thinking about fishing? Insert golf or whatever it is you want to insert. But time together. You remember the, the scripture with, about Mary and Martha. I won't read the whole scripture because you know it. But Jesus comes into this village and these two women who love Jesus, they welcome him in their home. And, and Martha, Martha's in the kitchen making German chocolate cake. But you know where Mary is? She's sitting right down at the feet of Jesus. You know, when, when Jesus came in, they had to kick all the toys to the side. And there was a little bit of mess on the, on the, you know, on the end table. And um, they had to move all that stuff away. But Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't care about that. He just wanted to sit down and just spend time together. And Martha, you remember, she got a little bit frustrated with her sister. And sisters will do that. She said, come on, Martha. Don't you know we've got Jesus here? We're putting, on, we're putting on everything. We're making the German chocolate cake with, with, with bluebell vanilla bean ice cream. Man. We're having a welcome party later. One thing I insisted on was there would be cake. They're thinking about it. And Jesus looks at, looks at Martha. He doesn't call her name because he, he knows in her heart he, she loves him, but She's so busy with these other things. He says, Martha, don't be anxious. Mary, your sister, she's chosen the good thing. Why don't you come? He didn't say this in the scriptures, but the implication was, why don't you forget about all of that? Let's come and sit down and, and let's talk. So that's what relationship looks like, is spending time with Jesus. It also looks like our intimacy with Christ. My favorite definition of intimacy is a definition that my wife shared with me from her counseling experience. This is a great definition. Maybe you'll write it down. Intimacy means to see into me. It means to see into me. When you're intimate with someone, you're able to, to see into their soul. You're able to see deeply into them. So if you're intimate with your spouse, you're, you're able to know what it is that really makes them tick, what really makes them function. And so when we spend time with Christ, there, there's this intimacy that develops with him and the old theologians, I love this phrase, they called it union with Christ. It, it's think of the, the marital union. It's like this, this this connection with Christ that is so close. And in John 13, 23, it, I love this verse. Sometimes we read right past it, but it says, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Now, if you know anything about reclining at the table, that means they were at a low table. They were sitting on these, these little pads, and, and because the rooms weren't big like we have in our, in our buildings today, they were sitting really close together. And in fact, one author, Brennan Manning, said that, that what happened here, he, he was, well, let me just read. He says the following. He says, we must not hurry past this scene in search of deeper revelation, or we will miss a magnificent insight, he writes. He says, God allows a young Jew reclining in the rags of his 20-odd years to listen to his heartbeat. That's how close he was. John was so close that it's like he could hear the heartbeat of Jesus coming out of his chest. That's the picture of intimacy. Can we hear the heartbeat of Jesus? You know, when we hear the heartbeat of Jesus and we're spending time with him, there's something about Jesus just rubs off on us. 
It just finds its way into our soul. It's a, like I said earlier, it's a soul-bending experience. What does that look like? Well, Galatians 5 gives us some insight into part of it. Not all of it, but part of it. Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is. See, when we're, when we're spending time with Jesus and we're listening to His heartbeat, the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then notice what He says, and against such there is no law. You see, that's the values that come into our life. And when those values come into our life, we just begin to live these values out in the world because we start just we start doing His will. We start practicing what He is speaking into our lives in our quiet time. John 15, 1 says that I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may become more fruit. Do you notice that we are in Him? Every branch in me. That's an intimacy word. That's a connectional word. That's a word that means that we are joined together in, in holy union with Jesus. And when we are, He floods our lives with His goodness. And then we're able to somehow live it out. Now, we're not perfect. But Jesus is making us right. It's completely different to be perfect than to be right. And Jesus makes us right. So this morning, in a moment, we're just, we're just going to stand and gonna sing a song. But before we do, what's happening in your life with Jesus? When you look at your life, do you feel like, maybe I'm leaning towards that, that being a Pharisee. I've got to check myself. The way, to, the way to not be a Pharisee is to be a Jesus follower and to truly live with Him and be in union with Him. And so this morning, I invite you to experience this union with Jesus that is so amazing, that's so wonderful. And this morning, if you, wanna, if you want someone to pray with you, right over here, there's an altar. And at this altar, there are going to be some people who are going to come and they're going to pray with you. So that whatever it is that you're facing in your life, they'll help you with. For those who just want to pray by yourself, there's an altar over here and we'd invite you to come there. For some of you this morning, you may be sitting there and you may be thinking, I don't really want to go to an altar. I, I, I don't want to go up there. Maybe you're new. You don't know anyone. You're, you're concerned. Let me tell you something. Right now where you sit is an altar. If you've made that altar in your heart. And right where you're at, if you want to respond to Jesus, you can do so. And, and if you want to respond to Jesus, there's a card in front of you. And if you make that commitment, we'd love for you to fill that card out so that we can get something to you to help you as you begin your walk of faith. Brothers and sisters, we're so grateful that we can do something for Jesus and live with Him. Stand with us and let's sing together this final song. Jesus the Nazarene and one 
Amen. Aren't you glad you were here today? Yeah. Well, I'm really excited. In the next few minutes, we're going we're gonna to have a welcome party. Now, who is this for? This is for new people. We're going to have food. We're going to have cake. I don't know if we have ice cream or not, but we're going to have some cake and some food and some more cake. So if you're new today, grab your kids. If you brought them with you, we're going to meet in the youth room and we're going to have a good time just talking a little bit about the church. Now, now, what's the definition of new? If you've been here 10 years, it's probably not you. But otherwise, if you think you're new and you didn't receive an invite for some reason, maybe we didn't have your information, you are welcome. We want you to come and join because God's, God's just going to do some great things here and we want you to be a part of it. Church, when you leave today, don't be the Pharisee that you're tempted to be. Be the Jesus He's making you to be. Amen. God bless you. Okay.